back to Game Study. Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for everything you might want to know about the academic field of game studies, or at least the parts of it we have read. I'm Cameron. I'm Michael. And today we're talking about Brenda Laurel's Computers as Theater. Uh, Michael, you know a lot about theater. I know everything there is to know about computers, um, <laughs> as this book really allowed me to explore. <laughs> no, maybe that's not true. I think you. Sir, I think you. Uh, not. Uh, not think. I'm positively certain you know more about theater than I know about computers, and yet I think we're going to be able to get through it. Uh, this book is. Oh, kind of a an HCI or human computer interaction theory book. It's a little bit of a textbook in some ways on like, you know, you can maybe teach a class with it. It's maybe written that way. It's a little bit of a like a designer's set of guidelines for thinking theatrically about um inter- our interactions with computers. There's there's a whole lot going on here. The book is really weird. Um and I don't mean that in any way in a negative way. It's just doing a lot of stuff all at one time. Um, and we are reading the uh, second edition of this book. The initial version of it, I think, was published in 1992, mm-hmm. uh, the first edition, and it's been hanging out for for a number of years. And I've, people have always been kind of excited about it, interested in it, and I've heard about it a lot of times. It is recognized, I think, canonically within game studies, um, uh, although not talked about nearly as much now as it was, I think, you know, um, seven, eight years ago when I first was really getting involved in, in game studies. But we have, we are reading for this uh, episode, the second edition, which is the edition, if you went online to go and purchase this, the edition you're more than likely to run into. It's been what seems to be pretty significantly rewritten in some places. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly it's, its examples are updated. Uh, yeah, the, um, the bit in the first chapter where she starts talking about smartphones, I was like, wait, wait a minute. If before I put that together, it was like, I understand why everyone was talking about this book suddenly because <laughs> she figured out we were going to call them smartphones in yeah, 1992. A, yeah, big cold shot, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I as we've talked about several times, it seems like a big marker for um, to be an important canonical book in game studies, you gotta have some called shots. Uh-huh. You know, and, and sometimes you hit, and sometimes you don't. And calling it a smartphone is a pretty big one. Yeah. Um. Well, you know, on the other hand, there are some interesting called shots in here. I mean, it was clear that, uh, and and Laurel's very clear about it too that she called the shot on VR, uh, mm-hmm. and, and or or a telepresent, a telepresent something, telepresence design, mm-hmm. um. I can't remember the exact formulation here, but we we learned quite quite a bit about that. But the book is a little uh, little uh, interesting in its scope and scale and what it's doing and what it's talking about and how it's doing these things in the chapters. And I think that has a lot to do with who Brenda Laurel is. Now, Michael, I've come to hear that you have prepared some sort of information about that. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about who Brenda Laurel is if people are not familiar with her work? Uh, yeah, sure. Um... Well, Brenda Laurel, uh, on her website, she describes herself as researcher, writer, consultant, teacher, and performer. Um, And she currently is serving as an adjunct professor in computer science at uh, UC Santa Cruz. And she has served as a professor and the founding chair of the graduate program in design at the California College of Arts. That was from 2006 to 2012. Um, 
she's uh, been in various other sort of similar academic positions like this. If it, if it's not clear, I'm sort of like condensing her CV from her website. Um, and uh, in the 90s, she was, uh, as you just sort of, I think, alluded to, part of a, a company called Telepresence Research. She was a co-founder there, uh, focusing on vir virtual reality and remote presence. Uh, she also has, I mean, she's worked in games she programmed for atari uh very uh she had what was the her own game design company uh purple moon mm -hmm. yeah kind of that kind was of a foundational a... um company for the the uh, girls games movement yes uh and that was when she so she started coding when she was a graduate student we get actually glimpses of this throughout her throughout this book um so this is also maybe why a uh, biography may continue to pop up um in surprising ways uh because one way of describing reading this book is almost like describing a a, a collection of kind of blog posts if that makes sense, mm -hmm. if people still yeah. remember what blog posts are like, because we just get a lot of sort of uh, reflections from her sort of firsthand, uh, again, speaking to sort of the practical nature of or part of the practical nature of the book, um, talking about her workplace experiences and uh, things of that nature. So really, like, she has done a lot of stuff uh, like, you know, there are anecdotes in here about meeting uh, like uh, Douglas Adams and things like that. So we have a uh, kind of a very clear picture of uh like Brenda Laurel as a person right she is a figure in game studies if that's like if you're not a game studies person if you just like sort of listen to the podcast for other reasons other nefarious purposes um my voice <laughs> they like to they like to hear my voice they like to hear my cowboy impressions <laughs> They they like to hear me talk about the Frisco Layton Dusklight. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> um, I just want to finish up with Rinda Laurel because I forgot this uh, mm -hmm. at the beginning. Uh, she does have uh, multiple degrees. I just want to list these: um, an MFA yeah. in acting directing, um, a PhD in drama and theory and criticism. That was at uh, Ohio State University. Um, uh, her dissertation was a uh, toward the design of an interactive fantasy system. Um, which is a really cool as hell title, I gotta say. Uh, um, and I believe she also got, yeah, yes, yes, she got a BA from DePauw, um, MFA, and PhD in theater from Ohio State University. So, um, you know, she, again, like, an accomplished person, like, has done a lot. Uh, and so a lot of this is kind of this interesting genre of, here is kind of where where my professional life has taken me, what expertise I have accrued, and what I'm kind of trying to pass on to you. Yeah, the whole kind of style of the book or the tone of the book, I agree, has this kind of like professional blog posty kind of vibe to it. And I, I don't think you mean that in a negative way, and I certainly don't mean it in that way either. But but the a lot of the lessons of the book are wrapped up in or tied into an anecdote from you know her time at Atari or her time at Activision, or her time at LucasArts, you know, right? Like yeah. we can, or her time at Purple Moon, like we can really... And, and when she was at these places are at the moments when these companies are becoming ascendant. Um, mm -hmm. You know, she she's not working at these companies way before they matter or way after, you know, in their kind of declines. Uh, I guess Activision never went into decline, but, you know, LucasArts and Atari certainly have a wax and wane relationship. 
uh, in the game industry, right? But she is at these places when they are, um, you know, huge powerhouses in the games industry. And and this book isn't necessarily uh, a book on game design, and it's not really a book on uh, lessons directly about games. Games are kind of like in the mix, but this is this is a book that's a little bit kind of more fundamental um, in, in its uh, aims, right? It's trying to figure out exactly what is going on when a human being uses a computational device and like what is an appropriate theory for talking about that and what are this kind of abstract or what she would call structural modes that allow us to to kind of think that and design for it and all those kinds of things so uh like you exactly like you said like the way she talks about that is like and uh yeah we were making a dark crystal game and douglas adams was there and terry mm-hmm. jones from <laughs> from monty python was hanging out and making voices and smashing things and uh and so it's really funny to see these kind of like you know i don't know cultural figures from the time show up but but as kind of anecdotal proof of of you know what both her time in the industry doing these exact things and also that these things probably work or or at least her theorizations of them are coming from things that that she thinks really works mm-hmm. yeah and so basically the cons- like that is a, a kind of description right like that's like what the experience of reading this is that's kind of what uh the texture of the book is um on a broader level the kind of conceit of the book the the core kind of idea or argument that underpins it and that was the you know basis i think to, to some degree based on the title of her uh dissertation or i believe it, it thesis i don't know if that matters for theater i'm sorry uh but anyway um is this idea that rather than kind of reinventing the wheel for human computer interaction right rather than approaching uh this is kind of an entirely new field uh that needs sort of new ideas or sort of new uh insights about it made up um is there kind of a way in which the ways that we interact with computers and the ways that we come to expect to interact with computers uh, are already in some ways prefigured by uh, the dramatic theory of Aristotle, very specifically, um, but theater more broadly? Yes. Uh, everything in this like broad theorization of interaction passes through aristotle and then shakespeare Mm -hmm. specifically hamlet and and the whole time that i was reading this i kept thinking gosh i wish i remembered anything of uh i'm michael you're gonna kill me (laughs) i can't remember the title of the video game we played elsinore there we go there you go i just couldn't do it but but the whole time especially when she's kind of talking about like the play within the play and the wheels within wheels of the thing i'm like nodding my head and thinking I wish I remembered any of this. I wish I could. <laughs> I wish I I didn't have in my head Rosencrantz and Guildenstern on that boat. I wish that wasn't in my brain. <laughs> <laughs> the video game has really interrupted my capability to know what happens in the play Hamlet. But uh, I did I did nod along um, and assume that you would explain it to me later. Uh, I mean, I'm probably not going to talk about uh, Shakespeare or her specific Shakespeare uses very much, um, if only because there isn't a lot... I mean, other than they're they're like, you know, just here's a quick kind of like gloss reading of the play, right? Hamlet is uh, 
Hamlet may be about these things is very often kind of how it shows up. Like if you like Hamlet is about uh, guilt and vengeance, right? Like that's how it's going to be invoked about kind of the, the broadness of its themes and the ways that those are easily apprehendable um, and communicable, um, which is true for a certain extent, right? Like that is like it, that those are popular ways that Hamlet the play has been glossed, um, but also sort of folds into um, the other way that this uh, book works, which is taking kind of very popular uh, broad strip. Like th this is partly for a, a non-academic audience, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I, I get some sense, right? It, it's uh, taking sort of popular examples or sort of things that we can count on the reader to know what we we can count on the reader to know something about Hamlet, and maybe that something is about uh, the vengeance or what have you. Um, but we can at least recontextualize or touch on something that someone knows and try to kind of illustrate an idea that we're pulling from hoary academic history, right? Maybe it's worth just digging into that. You want to just yeah. dive right into it? Okay. Yeah. Uh, so. I mean, that's, you know, the we sort of covered uh, everything in the first chapter, I think, um, as kind of her background. There's a lot, a lot of stuff there, and she sort of goes over ideas of uh, how the key, one of the key ideas in human-computer interaction has been the interface. Right. This is specifically mm -hmm. uh, the thing that she is going to set up uh, and sort of set set up to set aside. Right. This is how people have considered or thought about the problems that I'm going to talk about. And I'm going to say the interface might better be suited to something else. I'm going to use theater to talk about that. Um, what did you think of this? Well, I, you know, she, she kind of, this is a really weird, this is a weird connection to make, but I think that um, this book is written in a way that reminds me a lot of the work of Martin Heidegger. Um, <laughs> and that might be, that might be surprising to you. Um, okay. Um, uh, <laughs> but, but not, not in any kind of content wise, but in, in terms of form, because so much of the writing here, especially in chapter one, is dedicated to laying out a mode of thought that then she will come in and say, actually, that's entirely wrong. Um, and I think that actually does require a pretty careful read to actually figure out what exactly is what Brenda, Brenda Laurel is saying, uh, as opposed to what exactly is uh, Brenda Laurel's intervention. And that's not super helped by the fact that we don't really get a definition of representation, which is a key term for this mm -hmm. book. And we'll talk about it in a second. But we don't get a definition of representation, which is used all throughout chapter one until chapter two. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so so I, I had a kind of a hard time, you know, getting into the flow of this book um, and kind of orienting myself. Um, but but yeah, as you say, the kind of entree for the whole thing is this concept of the interface. And, and Laurel's trying to set up basically the bad model of interface so that we understand what she's responding to. The bad model of the interface is is this idea that they're kind of like two individual operators who are looking at one another and then responding to each other's uh, like faces. So like I look at the computer and it's a flat array of things that I can manipulate. And the computer looks at me as, as this kind of, I don't know, series of operability. And then there is a one, like a tit for tat relationship of like, I do a thing and it does a thing and I do a thing and it does a thing and I do a thing and it does a thing. And Laurel is saying that, that uh, this is 
insufficient. She calls this the conversation model, I think. This is based on your notes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, this is insufficient because it doesn't account for the dynamism that is involved in um, what's actually happening with humans use computers, which is that we have assumptions about what we can do, and the computer has assumptions about what we're going to be able to do. And as we perform our interactions, each of us are altering our mental models, right? Even though it's not a mental model for the computer, but we are we are altering our models with one another in order to create this kind of, I don't know, um, uh, responsive space. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that there's a word, the common ground model of, right. of this kind of like, you know, I don't know, blender of things that are occurring between us and the computer. And if we take that seriously, that means that uh, interactions with computers are incredibly like massively complex um, and require us to think a little bit more deeply about what's actually going on rather than just saying, Oh, I click buttons and then I expect things to pop up or whatever that, that the, the interaction itself requires a deeper theorization than people, at least before the original version of this book was written, than people had given it credit for. And she gives us a whole lot of citations of people from the 1960s up through the early 1990s who are kind of getting it wrong mm-hmm. you know, as she as she positions it. Right, exactly. And so the, the thing that sort of rushes in to help explain the interaction based on the idea that uh, w- what we need is some mode of talking about uh the ways that not just like two things are uh sort of on separated by glass or something like that and communicating with each other abstractly um how are these things like actually themselves like entities or beings or agents and that's the key word agents interacting uh together, right? She says that uh, interface design should concern itself with representing whole actions with multiple agents. This is, by the way, precisely the definition of theater. This is one of those things where um, I, the problem that you noted uh, sort of comes to the fore, which is uh, whose definition is that? Uh, is it Aristotle's definition? Because that is not necessarily, I think, a direct quote from Aristotle. There is kind of some Aristotelian language there, uh, which we're going to learn about very, very soon. Um, and so that is uh, kind of, you know, what you should be thinking about in, in the tone of this book and sort of some of the claims. And I think I'm going to highlight a couple of those places where uh, Brenda Laurel is extending Aristotle um, or sort of synthesizing sort of parts of Aristotle uh to kind of make him work for computers. <laughs> um, but mm-hmm. these are not moves she is necessarily flagging, and you might actually come out thinking that uh, Aristotle, like, just somehow there is a, 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 an Aristotelian way you could read the Poetics, which is a book about how to write tragedy, right? Or, like, what makes a good tragedy, um, and then come out and have, like, that somehow describe what happens when I'm interacting with an Excel spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of the the goal of the book in some ways, right? Or at least the goal as it's being set out in this chapter is that Laurel is after an appropriate theorization um, that allows us to understand what it what it would be like to create purely optimal um, computer interfaces, right? Or, or, or uh, interactions with computer. And I mean optimal in the sense of 
going to work the best, going to provide the best opportunities for both uh, computer and human being, going to, um, I, I guess, implicitly generate efficiencies and things like that, although I, I don't think she's really using that language. Um, mm -hmm. The language that uh, you, being used here on page 13 is well-designed interfaces, right? And so mm -hmm. we can think about all the ideology that kind of gets folded under well-designed. But basically, the you know, the kind of whole apparatus here is trying to think, well, what is it uh, about a theatrical production, right, mm -hmm. that can pull the human being into it, the, the audience member specifically? Mm -hmm. What is it about a theatrical production that pulls an audience member in and makes them feel as if they are fully a part of the thing, while obviously we know that they are not a part of the thing? You know, an audience is a critical part of a theatrical production, um, but they are not uh, an acting, they are, they are an agent, I guess, but they are not an acting party in the sense of in a traditional play, they're not reading lines or doing roles or anything like that. And Laurel, of course, I mean, I'm sure that many people are, a thousand red flags are, are popping in their head. And But Laurel does a pretty good job of explaining, you know, what the, the when that model is interrupted, how that still kind of fits within this. And actually, she's just pretty dismissive for the most part of like <laughs> theatrical productions that involve the audience in any way other than as an audience. Mm -hmm. She's like, oh yeah, it just didn't work in the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> that happens a couple times. So, you know, she doesn't have a, a super uh, robust theory of it, but she's trying to think, you know, what is it? We know that theater is entirely artifice when we go to see it, right? And there's um, you know, the staging of it, there is the stage itself, there are the actors, there are the props, there's all the set dressing, all those things are there, and we know that we are not in it, and yet we feel as if we are in it, we feel as if um, our emotions are being taken care of and, and taken into account, and we align ourselves with characters, and so she's trying to, like, backtrack, kind of, right, she's trying to say... Um, from uh, the the me sitting down with the computer and from me sitting down to watch a theatrical production, how many steps backward from those things can we take before we recognize that there are shared qualities? And then how can we kind of distribute the theatrical things that we have learned over into the realm of computer interaction? Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of what this whole first chapter is, is trying to like convince us is humanly possible that we can do that. Um, and you know what? Like I'm... I'm just down in a general sense. Like, no one has to convince me of anything like this ever. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, this is not written for me, someone who is is um, willing to accept basically any claim on, on, on the planet. Um, <laughs> so she's very careful about trying to, to make sure that we feel comfortable about that. And she does a lot of that through her kind of explanation of the relationship between reality and representation. Mm-hmm. Do you want to take a swing at this, or do you want me to take a swing at this? Well, I mean, it's a thing that you have come to quite quite vocally several times, and I kind of want to foist it off on you, but I'll I'll uh, put down a runway um, for you. Um, so traditional human computer interface uh, work, or sort of like a general uh, way of thinking about representation, especially in the context of theater, is going to be that there are people sitting in the audience. And then there are people standing on the stage. And what is happening on the stage is the representation. Okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens when we're talking about a computer? Well, 
one might think, and this is uh, touching on what you said about the the productions that didn't work out. What if the audience was just sitting on stage? And there is not. Th- th- this is not like a complete dunk on. Uh, actual practices of immersive theater or anything like that like successful examples like sleep no more uh by punch drunk uh show up later right this is talking about sort of um it's it's sort of like establishing a category of uh thoughtless or undisciplined introduction or something uh the audience just sort of gets up on stage and suddenly everything is confusing because they are running straight into the representation they are telling or like they're interfering with the theatrical action in some way the sort of idea here is that i think it sort of puts the human and the computer as sort of opposition uh because the 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 sort of like internality of the computer is seen as uh sort of something that the the user is not welcome into right or sort of like the Mm -hmm. user participant is not welcome and so laurel wonders what if with computers the representation is more like a spotlight and i don't really follow this um but if it's if it's more like a spotlight i sort of follow it actually is the thing it's just like i don't quite know how we get here because it doesn't seem like it's an extension or in any way kind of resolves the problem of the theater. Um, But it's sort of like, what if there were just a spotlight on the stage and the things in the spotlight were interacting with one another? Yeah. And that could include parts of the audience. Right. I guess. Um, Yeah. I, I, yes. So this whole thing, like the, the whole theorization of the book and everything that we're going to talk about from here on out sits on the theory of representation. And we have talked on the show a million times about the different uses of the word representation. Um, You know, this is not representation in the sense of uh, people who are looking for representation in media, right? Like, Like, that's one way of thinking about representation. This is also not what I would call, like, the philosophical mode of representation. So, like, a critique of the concept of representation. This is building out of Aristotle, uh, Laurel is building out of Aristotle, a conception of representation that is universal, meaning that she sees all of reality or positions all of reality as just a series of stages of modes of representation. There's no, um, in, in, or, or at least maybe not all of reality, but for when I sit down, in front of a computer, and when I sit in front of a theatrical production, all of reality is representation. It's a recreation of something else, something that might not even really exist, right? So, for example, when I sit down in front of a computer and look at my desktop, that is a representational, uh, or, or quite literally a representation of a conception of a desktop. And it's not a desktop that refers to anything real, right? There's no desk on earth that operates the way that a desktop does on a computer. Um, You know, it's this weird, Mm -hmm. stretchable, metaphorical whatever. Um, And similarly, right, when I sit down and look at, I don't know, I I haven't seen a real theatrical production in a million years. When I watch the film Birdman and I see (laughs) an apartment on stage, right, that's not a real apartment. That is a representation of... um, uh, of an apartment it's certainly not a pipe um and so uh so what what laurel says is that because of this kind of of representational um regime that underwrites both 
uh, our interactions with computers and our interactions with theatrical theatrical production that that shared sense or that they, they are both part of a shared uh yeah i guess structural regime where the only thing we have access to is representation so representations themselves are reality in mm-hmm. both the theater and in in the the context of uh interacting with machines i will be completely honest with you i mean i'm a, i'm with you I, I read this book i read all the words mm-hmm I don't really understand how this theory is proved other than if you just accept that Aristotle is right about everything and that her extrapolations out of Aristotle are like all warranted, right? Mm-hmm. But this isn't really that kind of academic book, right, that that would do that kind of of playing out. I don't think I could reconstruct for you like why these things are are true other than what I just did, right, which is that there's a kind of symmetry in structure between the way that computational representation works and the way that uh, theatrical representation works. But just like you you were saying a minute ago, Michael, this is made, this argument is made with such confidence <laughs> that I'm, I'm, I'm left being like, okay, yeah, all right, mm-hmm. sure. <laughs> like this, this is probably true. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I'll admit, you know, that, that I have kind of a hard time tracing the full argument of the book because i really just do not understand how these things build together and genre wise this this book just isn't interested in um in kind of building that out and kind of fully proving the argument um one way or the other other than kind of citing aristotle in the next few chapters to do it i i will say this is something we didn't say at the beginning of the episode but but i'm just thinking now that you know, Brenda Laurel reminds me that this book, uh, in general, reminds me a lot of Chris Crawford's work, um, who you know is kind of a, a huge, hugely famous name in um, game design and kind of theorizations of games and things like that. And I absolutely think that Brenda Laurel should be used in the same sentence with Chris Crawford. You know, he's summoned up all the time to to speak to. I mean, his theory is summed up all the time to to speak to all kinds of things in game design constantly. And I think that every time Chris Crawford uh, is showing up. Brenda Laurel's name should be showing up too, because I think this is just as big of a conceptual definitional space for um, how we interact with, with uh, you know, computational objects as Crawford does. But I think that Laurel shares some of the same kind of uh, argumentative issues as Crawford in that I have a really hard time kind of getting to the root theorizations. I, I you know, I, I could probably... Um, uh, what do you call it? Like outline this book for you, but when I'm getting to like subpoint A one, I don't know if I could like give you every warrant in a line to prove this to anyone else. So, um, you know, that, that's a big long exp- explanation of what I think is going on with representation here. Um, maybe you feel differently. Uh, no, I think that that is a pretty accurate way of um, sort of thinking about it. I'm not familiar with Crawford, but uh, just to sort of give further illustration uh the next two chapters are about kind of taking these ideas from aristotle and unpacking them and sort of uh seeing how they resonate within the the context of human computer interaction um and coming at this sort of with my quest like what i when i come to aristotle i have a whole host of questions that have already been programmed into my head right i am a phd in early modern literature early modern english literature 
Mm-hmm. Um, and this means that there are specific things that Aristotle, I know about historically, I know about his reception of, or the reception of his work and sort of like how he fits into larger systems of thought. Um, all of these kinds of things come to bear on what I am thinking about when I'm talking about Aristotle or when anyone is sort of telling me something about Aristotle, right? I'm, I'm thinking like, what would the 15th century church have thought of this, right? <laughs> so, well, can, can, can you do me a favor really quick? Yeah. Um, because my, my question when I hear the name Aristotle, you know, not being a, a PhD in these things and, and knowing nothing about theater, I've got one big question. Who the hell is Aristotle, Michael? Well, Aristotle was a Greek guy. Okay. Uh huh. Cool. Uh, which one? <laughs> he was the student. Was he of in Plato. the Animal House? Was he in the yeah. uh, the Animal House frat? Is that the one yeah. he was in? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was John Belushi. He was, he um, was the motorcycle guy. Now I get it. <laughs> <laughs> no, so Aristotle. Um, one of uh, sort of the the big Greek philosophers. He's a studo- student of Plato. Um, so Plato and Plato's theory of forms, uh, allegory of the cave. These are things that we talk about in uh, our episode on gamer theory by Mackenzie Wark. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Aristotle is another Greek philosopher who uh, in many ways differs from Plato in that uh, certain claims that Plato infamously made uh, like say that uh, art objects are always kind of dangerous. Representation is always kind of dangerous, uh, and therefore, you know, poetry is going to be banned from my ideal society. And of course, he tells these stories through the figure of Socrates, who is the other, you know, philosopher who often gets invoked. Anyway, um, Aristotle is chiefly notable for being someone who kind of will take up an issue that Plato seems to have already decided. So something like, you know, representations are kind of evil and tricky and bad, and maybe we should have strict limitations on them and be like, actually, no, here's how that's good. Right. And it's usually very natural. Um, uh, Aristotle is kind of at the beginning of uh, certain narratives about how like scientific thought develops. Right. As well as mm-hmm. philosophical thought. Um, and so you get very broad kind of ideas, very broad systems, lots of categorizations of things. Uh, Aristotle loves to build systems and sort of like base these systems on kind of his observation, his empirical observation of the natural world, and always kind of assuming that everything is happening um, because there is kind of a, a, an end point or a telos in nature, right? A kind of natural tendency toward which all things are sort of moving, and this thing is kind of, like, in and of itself always good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, big uh-huh. on uh, taxonomies. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, uh, parsing up the whole world. I think, I think, uh, did, did Aristotle invent, did he invent the alignment chart? Yeah, probably. Oh, my God. And, and the tier list. Uh. <laughs> yes. Uh, exactly. <laughs> Aristotle, the first gamer. Oh my god, mm-hmm. the first gamer of Plato's cave. Oh, oh my god. <laughs> We're covering so many, so many things here. Anyway, <laughs> um, one of the, so Aristotle, this is all to say, Aristotle's method, um, is usually like looking at a lot of examples of a thing, or, uh, and then sort of like trying to derive, uh, a very universal, uh, description of it. Um, mm-hmm. 
this can result in things that are like his book Poetics, which is of key sort of uh, importance here. Uh, Poetics is his work of dramatic theory, and it's like, I have seen and read like a whole bunch of plays. Some of them are you know, better received historically, like they're well known or whatever. Um, some of them are better than others. I have deduced from reading and watching all of these plays, what are the sort of general uh, similarities among things that are considered good versus things that are considered not as good. And that is the book, right? Um, like, and uh, sort of like noting structural sim similarities and being like, okay, so, uh, in the tragedy, there is a hero, and that hero often uh, has some sort of moment of recognition of uh, the truth about himself or his situation, uh, and that somehow pivots on a, a mistake that has been made at some point in the past, and it wasn't noted that it was a mistake, or it's some sort of personal flaw, and he gives all of these things names, right? So that's Hamartia is the name of that personal flaw that ends up being the downfall of the hero. So Laurel says, you know, uh, Hamlet's, uh, you know, Hamartia is that he, uh, you know, delays, right? The, the sort of traditional... Um, idea that he has been given a he has been given the the task of enacting vengeance and he delays in doing that and therefore he has his kind of downfall. Um, mm -hmm. So this is this is how Aristotle talks about plays, uh, and from this he derives a whole series of uh, descriptors uh, that show up in a chart. So I'm just going to scroll down my notes here to read them. Uh, plays are made of things like action, character, thought uh language melody and spectacle um these will be like distinctions of uh drama that aristotle will talk about and he'll sort of say some of these are more important than the others uh and he'll just kind of like this is aristotle right he is just sort of expositing these things to you because he's decided that uh you know, the language is more important in tragedy in all drama because you can still read a play and kind of get a sense for what the story is, right? Like, that's a thing that kind of comes out of Aristotle. And then, of course, the other thing to keep in mind is that this results in a lot of uh, sort of specious and strange arguing, and this is in no way sort of, like, uh, Laurel doesn't talk about any of this. This is about sort of, like, Aristotle and sort of, like, the problems with Aristotle, um, as a philosophical figure who often gets invoked as kind of, you know, like a very uh, important and defining uh, uh, person for like, you know, thinking about ethics uh, and and so on and so forth. Um, he's the kind of person who will, uh, you know, walk around uh, the town and sort of observe people and from that kind of extrapolate types of people and then sort of, you know, do his thing and be like, well, this type of person is better than the other type of person or doing something in some better way. And things like I saw a slave who was very good at his job and therefore slavery is good because obviously this guy was so good at fulfilling his tasks as a slave that that's what he was meant to do. That sort of thing. So mm -hmm. um, I just want to flag that about Aristotle because uh, it's just a if 
In some ways, this book is positioning Laurel as an Aristotelian philosopher, because later on in this chapter, she is going to go outside of Aristotle's poetics, where he talks about theater, and bring in uh, his four causes, which are not from the poetics, they are from his physics and metaphysics. But this is not sort of made clear. Um, when Aristotle is uh, invoked here, he is invoked as kind of smooth, right? Aristotle smoothly transitions among uh, his various texts, like there is a kind of like coherent figure called Aristotle, who in some way has spoken unitarily about all these things. Um, whereas, you know, approaching this as an early modernist, uh, I have questions of things like, well, which specific texts, which translations, right, which printings, and so on and so forth. So this means that I am coming at, this ends up having, you know, important impacts on uh, whose uh, philosophy is being filtered in and out of these discussions in the transmission of Aristotle. Um, and kind of uh, how these systems of thought have developed, and that is not here, that is not in this book, and so I just, I wanted to flag that as well. <laughs> and so if we were to uh, sort of get down into the nitty-gritty and really explain how all of this can get unpacked, how Aristotle can get unpacked here, because there is significant writing um, to this point, uh, we would be here all day because, again, Aristotle is the, you know, he comes up with these different ways of talking about what happens in drama, and uh, Laurel explains all, you know, six of them, and then she does the work of sort of saying, you know, well, here's how this actually can get, get reformatted and be used in, in the context of human-computer interaction, and she'll go through a couple examples of that. Um, I don't think it's going to necessarily serve us well to, like, walk through all of that unless you really, really want to, Cameron. No, I mean, I think it's very, uh, as I said at the beginning of the episode, it's very textbooky in that regard mm -hmm. and very outliney in the sense of like, as you're saying, she gives us the full schematic and then gives us examples for the entire schematic. And it's interesting, but also um, if you are very interested in the blow by blow of this, you can purchase the book and read it because it really is the majority of, of you know, the kind of direct argumentation and it's more of a proof of a theory than it is a um you know there's not a lot of output to it other than yep you can apply aristotle to computers like and you know i, I wouldn't have to be convinced of that too much either way but if you find that um you know if you're like i don't know i don't know if you can apply aristotle to uh, modes of interaction i think that laurel does a really great job of explaining that to you um, I do think there's one part that we haven't talked about super heavily right yet, and you might be trying to guide us into it, mm -hmm. but um, she's really into Aristotle for the output as well, right? For for catharsis. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you didn't bring up catharsis, so I want to push you into it. Can you explain Aristotelian catharsis and, and why Laurel thinks it's so beneficial? Yeah, so this book's relationship to catharsis is interesting. Uh, catharsis is put forth by Aristotle as uh, kind of the reason for tragedy, um, which is to say Aristotle in uh, his kind of mode obviously faces a problem when he's talking about tragedy, which is why on earth, if, if, we, if we desire things that are good, right, if the human being, if the human organism desires things that are good for itself, why on earth do we like to hear stories about bad things? Right, like what is happening there? There's some sort of like problem um, in Aristotle's kind of theorization of how the the subject should desire and what it actually ends up desiring, and he introduces the notion of catharsis to describe what he thinks 
uh, is kind of the purgation of negative emotions that come with experiencing uh, by way of, uh, you know, false representation, things that are that normally would be unpleasant or, uh, you know, uh, disturbing. So that is Aristotle's theory of catharsis. Um, people will differ in their interpretations about like the degree to which whether or not uh, he saw this as explicitly kind of like a salutary thing versus like a thing that is just kind of what happens, right? A kind of like uh, almost emotional biomechanical release valve kind of thing. Um, but what is interesting uh, for Laurel is that she takes catharsis to mean whatever happens to complete the action. So the action is uh, a thing that Aristotle talks about. You'll notice that I have like given a, a kind of explanation of catharsis very clearly on its own terms, but in getting to Laurel, I have to backtrack and explain more Aristotle terminology that Aristotle himself does not use. So that's one of those things that I want to point out where uh, we see uh, Laurel operating as kind of, you know, a popular Aristotelian philosopher. Um, she is, you know, uh, synthesizing these ideas in kind of novel arrangements. Um, action for Aristotle is kind of the plot of the play. Um, or it's another way of describing, like, what are the things that are happening uh, on stage or in the narrative? And for Aristotle, this is the most important thing. Uh, at, the, at the sort of core of the idea of tragedy is that it is about a sequence of events that sort of relate to each other in, in a causal chain, and they bring about some sort of um, catastrophic end. So, uh, formally, as you might expect, there's uh, some maybe reservations to be had about, like, universalizing the idea of catharsis, but obviously Laurel does not mean it in that way. But it is an interesting way of kind of taking a term from Aristotle and really making it mean something else, because she also brings up another uh, theater writer um, and sort of philosopher, Bertolt Brecht, who was uh, a, a German um, playwright in the 1930s and uh, 40s, uh, I think 40s, um, very, very stridently communist, uh, anti-fascist, uh, wrote, um, you know, Mother Courage and Her Children, uh, Three Penny Opera, um, had very particular ideas about theatrical practice. And indeed, one of the things that he thought was that uh, Aristotle was almost totally wrong in every conceivable way. Um, one of the ways that Brecht thought that Aristotle was not necessarily wrong, but at least um, his presence in, in kind of like intellectual like uh, circles uh, insidious was precisely the idea that catharsis by sort of getting people worked up by uh, stimulating people's negative emotions and then giving them a, a kind of release valve and seeing the, the downfall, right? The kind of resolution of the tangle of the plot um, in the tragic drama that uh, Aristotelian sort of dramaturgy is actually kind of rechanneling what could be a, a revolutionary sentiment. So Brecht is straight up anti 
catharsis. Like, he does not think plays should have it, right? This is why Brecht's uh, endings are often very jarring, very confusing for for the audience. Um, uh, you know, strange things happen, they don't end happily. They uh, end in, in the, the plays are often, they'll call attention to their own fictionality in ways that... Uh, make it so you can't really identify with the characters as people. They become sort of symbols, abstractions, not into catharsis. But Laurel does consider Brecht to believe in some form of catharsis. She, in fact, represents him as doing that. So just to take us to the text, uh, to bounce around a couple places here, um, catharsis is defined, uh, or rather, on 147, catharsis could be defined as actions a player may take that influence things outside of the in-game experience. Cameron? Mm-hmm. I'm hearing it. Uh-huh. Might that seem awful broad to you? It it does, and it has to do with how she kind of staples catharsis onto necessity. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? Because she takes Aristotle, you know, completely at his word, or, or is kind of, you know, putting all of this Arist Aristotelian thought together, and so... Um, the ending of the play is what the plot demands, mm -hmm. right? And so because it's necessary, um, it allows us to kind of like flip the switch and have the, the cathartic re relationship to it. But but then it, as you're saying, it is overly broad because then it would imply that literally everything can, uh, as long as you're able to like reflect on it and emotionally respond after, you know, the stage lights come up or whatever, mm -hmm. then it's catharsis. Right. And, and that, that seems a little bit broad. Perhaps. Right. And that's exactly how she gets over Brecht, who is a guy who specifically sets out to write what he thinks of as anti-cathartic drama. So, yeah. Um, and, and I think here to do, you know, uh, I think something that's in the mix here that we haven't mentioned yet is that, you know, uh, Brenda Laurel is a, an entrepreneur in California, an entrepreneur and tech worker in California in the 1970s through the early 2000s. Right. I think her politics and her ideas about the world largely align with what gets called the Californian ideology, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's very much about the entrepreneurial spirit to solve some of the issues of the world. She is very much aligned with things like the whole earth catalog and, and the well. Um, you know, I, I think sees herself as politically progressive and, and I mean, probably is politically progressive. Um, but never brings up the fact that part of the reason that, that there is this kind of friction between um, Brecht and Aristotle is that Brecht wants you to be radicalized, right? He's a communist. Mm -hmm. He's a Marxist. Um, he is deeply critical of any kind of system that allows you at the end of the day to have a bunch of contradictions and then resolve those contradictions, right? Mm -hmm. And in fact, what we see Laurel doing in this very moment is taking something that is deeply contradictory right that mm -hmm. is that brecht is trying to in a marxist sense heighten the contradiction to create a moment of revolutionary potential and she easily dissolves it right by kind of theorizing her way out of the problem mm -hmm. um and you know i i don't say any of that to be like you know finger waggy or anything about that at Brenda laurel but i think that she is of a particular kind of class and political set um that that isn't particularly interested in thinking through the hard problem of Brecht. Uh, it is interested in overcoming it to make better technological objects. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that she would say that. That's entirely what the last chapter of this book is about mm -hmm. um, in in more words than, than what I just said. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, so there's this weird kind of thing going on here, too, with catharsis, as you, you know, really uh, in a really excellent way, just kind of outlined for us where um, she is pulling the concept in a way that is really 
uh, interesting, I think, for someone who is interested in interaction design and someone who is interested in thinking about the implications of what are the outcomes that one should have mm-hmm. with an interaction with a computer, and especially if you're a game designer, right? What are the kind of uh, interactions that you want uh, people to have and what do you want them to take with you? But important to know while reading that maybe it's um, a, a stretching of the concept that goes maybe a little bit further than it should. Also important to know or to remember, too, that all the most famous um, moments of catharsis for Aristotle are all deeply political mm-hmm. and uh, about, you know, the state being right all the time, right? Or, or at least the preservation of the state, right? So we can think of uh, Oedipus mm-hmm. or, um, uh, gosh, what's the third Oedipus play? Um, uh Oedipus at Colonus? Oh no, the Oh, oh Antigone. Uh, you're thinking of Antigone, the, you're thinking right, the popular the... one, not the not the <laughs> weird one that no one likes that I mentioned. <laughs> yes, you're right. Yeah, you know the one that everyone writes about. Uh-huh. Um but right, that those are all about the kind of maintenance of the stable order of things. Um and catharsis is critical to generating the maintenance of the stable order of things. And mm-hmm. so when we're considering making um, you know, uh, uh, digital artifacts, games, um, you know, uh, spreadsheets, right? She's very wide, wide ranging in what she's interested in applying these principles to. We have to think about what the internal politics are to even the structure. And that's one of them is that ultimately it's about the preservation of the structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's kind of the the maneuver that happens in chapter two is outlining Aristotle and kind of providing this this. I don't know, bone structure from which the rest of the book can kind of build on and be in conversation with. And she uses a bunch of different thinkers to do that. Um, I don't know, Michael, you want to talk about chapter three where, where Laurel is kind of playing out some modes of plot development. Yeah. Uh, so this is where the uh, book really turns, do it yourself or not really do it yourself but um, sort of, speaking to you with the idea that you are a person who is interested if if not in necessarily talking about uh interactive narrative then in writing it right i think that this mm-hmm. is um, kind of we get we get into kind of a workshop angle here uh because we're seeing a lot of influence from actual like from her theater background from kind of uh theatrical practice like not only just ideas from theater criticism and how to write plays but things that you are taught when you are an actor kind of uh or actor writer like if you're if you're in kind kind of a general theater program. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is all to say uh, there are a couple of ways that theater has for thinking about plot that Laurel wants to bring over. Uh, this grows out of the Aristotelian background in the sense that for Aristotle, the plot is the most important thing, right? The story and sort of like the sequence of events and kind of how they interact, right? How is it that Oedipus at the beginning of the day is king and at the end of the day uh, has, you know, realized he's guilty of a horrible crime and has gouged out his own eyes, right? Um, Computers uh, can deal with causal sequences very, very easily, uh, but obviously things get a lot more complex if you're dealing with a video game, uh, let alone something as general as what I've mentioned before, a spreadsheet, which again, like everything that Laurel is talking about here is uh, like equally applicable to both video games and spreadsheets, right? If it runs on a computer screen, it is something she is talking about. 
Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> so you can see why, like, sequences of events might get much more complicated than, than the Aristotelian version. Uh, and she brings in from theater uh, this idea of the flying wedge, um, which sounds really, really funny. Uh, but it is the idea that at the beginning of a play, you have uh, kind of, you know, you sit down at the theater, curtain hasn't gone up, literally anything could be behind that curtain. Now, presumably, right, you know what you're there to see and you've bought tickets or whatever, but the idea is, you know, possibilities are high at the beginning of a play. Curtain goes up, and you see that the background is a sunny orchard and there is a elegantly appointed country house, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and suddenly, the possibility of what the play could be about has changed. Right. And then suddenly uh, the first character walks on stage and it is uh, a nine foot tall robot. Okay. Now your possibility space has gone up a lot. That's a little hack that Laurel doesn't teach it, teach you that you can just constantly back up on things like this. Um, <laughs> no, I only did that because it's funny. Uh, normally, uh, you know, as as you're watching the play, like characters come on, they get established. Um, and the, the sort of like, you know, eventually you get to a point where you're like, okay, this is the story, right? It's kind of these people kind of bouncing together and something is going to come out of these actions. Uh, and eventually we get to the ending, which is the point for Aristotle, right? The point of necessity that you were just talking about that Mm -hmm. every sort of particular action that happens on stage should in some way build up to what the last thing that happens on stage is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, think of if if you don't have any other point of reference, think about something uh, like Chekhov's gun. Mm-hmm. Right. So you see, you know, they're there. Uh, we go into an interior space. You see the gun on the mantelpiece. And, you know, Chekhov's gun is a kind of conceptual thing is that if you see the gun in the first act, it's got to go off in the third act. Mm-hmm. Right. But and so the V itself, right, is is. Anything can happen with that gun. Anything can happen with that gun. Anything can happen with that gun as the play goes on. But as it gets closer to the end, we're going to get to the gun going off. Mm-hmm. Right? That's the ne- that's the necessity in Chekhov's gun as a thing. And, you know, uh, for the big ensemble of everything that you're seeing in the play, there's a similar patterning of movement toward the last final necessary action. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So that's one particular way of approaching uh like uh, uh, one way of approaching sort of a wider stretch of thought than the typical Aristotelian uh, subject, right. Of the, of the ancient Greek tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one uh, that comes up is Freytag's triangle, which is uh, a way of describing like the, the escalation or complication of a plot over time. So this is thinking through uh, the theatrical experience from a slightly different angle. Uh, like we start out with a situation, um, that situation, you know, there's, there's exposition. Um, and I can't, I didn't type out all five parts of Freytax triangle because it's one of those things that is taught in creative writing courses. It's, it's very, very popular. Um, Mm -hmm. but you start out, you have your exposition that establishes characters, who they are, what the situation is. 
Um, and uh, that builds into like some sort of plot complication, right? There's someone wants something, but they can't get it because of problem X. Um, and this builds up to a kind of collision point where, uh, you know, the climax happens, like the, the, the point of highest emotional volatility, where uh, everything, all of the kind of plot beats are paying off. Uh, and then after that, we have the de-escalating action um, that is just sort of the unfolding of, you know, Aristotle uh, breaks this up similarly. He only does it in three stages. Freytag does it in five. Um, but they're they're very, very similar, and it's often represented as a triangle where you start at the low point, the story gets more excited, more exciting or more complicated. Uh, that's the high point, and then it drops until we have another low point, which is the end. Mm -hmm. Rising action, falling action, all these different things. Mm -hmm. um, and for, you know, the, the way that uh, Laurel radicalizes this, and I, I think radicalizes is the right, right word for it, is like, what if everything you do with a computer also can be mapped like this. Yes. You know, what if this like plot map is useful for thinking about the way that we deal with computers in it, it, the way that we deal with Microsoft word. I mean, she's, she's at that level of like fundament of, of interaction or even your desktop experience. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's fascinating when I was reading this book and thinking, you know, she's writing this in the early nineties or at least, you know, the first version of these thoughts in the early nineties. And some of it's even in her dissertation at the late eighties. And it's like, Oh damn. Like, yeah, this is just like social media, right? Yeah. Social media is the, the slow but sure formulation of, of, um, uh, or, or, or it's the flying wedge, I guess, right? It's a flying wedge of like possibility that slowly but surely puts the same tweets mm -hmm. in front of you over and over <laughs> again until you do the necessary action, which is interacting with them, right? Mm -hmm. You know, quote tweeting them because you hate seeing them so much, uh, even blocking them, right? It's negative data, but it's data that's allowing the, the algorithm to um, understand your wants and desires and needs, right? Liking it, responding to it. Um, like, I, you know, I can easily see how people have uh, read and engaged with Laurel's work or, or, you know, similar kind of thoughts coming out of the eighties and nineties and then weaponized it in some of the most horrifying ways. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I was like, damn, <laughs> like, I can't believe Aristotle's being used against me in my day-to-day -day <laughs> life. Oh, oh dear. Yes. Uh, yeah, that, that is exactly the thought that i was having is like oh man she like i mean depending on when this was written like she kind of called social media and sort of how those things work right the way that narrative gets built emergently on social media and there's even a bit here um on 86 i wanted to pull this out because uh it strikes me as reminiscent of uh janet murray in hamlet on the hollow deck uh something mm -hmm. she talks about there she calls it the cyber bard uh here laurel calls it uh quote a program that reformulates the potential for action creating new possibilities and probabilities quote on the fly as a response to what has gone before is equivalent to a playwright changing a plot in real time as a collaboration with the actors and director and communicating new portions of script to them in real time through some auto magical means and she, you know to note this is a book that uses the the term auto magical like full-heartedly means it right auto magic um yep. in other words the way in which human computer interaction is more dynamic than drama is in the aspect of reformulating the action rather than its enactment so it's kind of the 
the way that it can render these things sort of cyclical. And I was thinking, like, is this not like using the computer every day? Yeah. Right? Uh, I mean, <laughs> is it not like Twitter having a main character every day? Yes. Exactly. Right, like there's like there's a structural form that demands that someone be sacrificed, right, <laughs> or someone be be algorithmically um, elevated to the level of which they become the Twitter main character of the day, and it's absolutely deciding that on the fly, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a it it is both. I mean, I think it would be like the internet utopian thing to say, uh, oh, well, you know, it's just an emergent property, and that's what happens when all these systems are interacting together. But we know that algorithmically there's all kinds of shuffling, right? For like what is getting the most types of reaction, right? And mm-hmm. we know that negative emotions drive interaction uh, on social media way more than any other type, right? So, you know, the algorithm is moving in particular ways. It is changing the plot in real time in collaboration with the actors. Uh-huh. Um, except, you know, th- that's all us, right? We're having to live through it. Um, as and and sometimes we're you know held hostage, strapped down in in the audience. Yeah, but um, you know it's almost like a Batman villain is doing all of this to us. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Like this part is like I. It, it it's a sort of depressing sort of way that it's turned out, but like the way that she is correct or like her, the way that she is again, extending sort of this Aristotelian mode of looking at and understanding action just seems to map so clearly to, to the ways that we interact with each other online that it's, it's um, truly incredible. Uh, yeah. Well, and I think the the thing to remember here too, right, is that the, the innovation here, or like the important, big thing that that laurel is doing it's not just that she's describing the process even though the description here is really cool it is that she is saying that the form itself right that that is the structure of um representation and then the theatrical form that kind of is involved in that 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 is what provides a a, a kind of orientation for this whole apparatus mm-hmm. um you know that's the big kind of buy-in here is that if you knew how theater worked and if you thought hard enough about how theater worked with interaction, you could have already called this shot too, mm-hmm. right? You know, it's just her playing out the argument. That's what's so fascinating to me. It's not that she's predicting technologically or anything like that, right? She's not saying, oh, if we invent something where people are all online at the same time, then this thing would happen. She's saying at the root of all computer interaction is this theatrical mode, mm-hmm. and it can be accessed through particular types of affordances. You know, it's something we didn't talk about earlier in chapter one, but there's this whole conversation with Don Norman. Mm-hmm. Don Norman writes the the forward or the preface, the preface to the book, one of those. Um, he writes a little intro to the book. And so very much in conversation with certain technologies having certain capabilities, but as Laurel's saying, they all have the capability or, or the kind of structural form at their base of this theatrical mode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, the next chapter, then, uh, chapter four, uh, sort of extends on some of this, and she starts talking about, like, uh, MUDs and Lambda Move, things that we've talked about before, early MMOs. Uh, uh, she talks about Warcraft and sort of what she starts getting into here in this chapter then sort of extending what she's already talked about is uh, fan creation, fan cultures. Henry Jenkins shows up here. We've talked about mm-hmm. him on this show before. Um, and uh, in many ways, and again, right, this is this the other interesting thing about this book is that I don't know which parts were written when. Um, 
it feels like very much in conversation with Celia Pierce's book about uh, the mm-hmm. ways that uh, when you're in charge of an MMO, when you're a game designer, or game developer, right, you can uh, give your players affordances uh, that they end up using in ways you don't expect. And then you get emergent in-game behaviors like, you know, hide and go seek games and, and things of that nature. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, Celia in the, so the, this second edition has a, Okay, let me see here. So Don Norman writes a foreword, and then Laurel writes a preface for this edition. Mm-hmm. And the the preface calls out other people who are kind of carrying on similar work, mm-hmm. um, you know, and speci- specifically calling out women in the games industry and in academia. And Celia Pierce is one of those. Mm-hmm. So, so absolutely, this is in, in conversation with her work. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's cool. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's kind of where this chapter is, is sort of going is thinking of, uh, like, like Pierce, uh, she's sort of thinking through like online communities and how kind of emergent behavior comes about, uh, little like memes or, or fads, uh, what are behaviors that groups of players start exhibiting? And then how do you kind of incorporate that into an ongoing kind of like collaborative thing with your, with your players? Um, they, this is all kind of building us up to a, a sort of here, here, literally the, the chapter after this is going to be here are my uh, principles for how to guide your design in, in this. Uh, mm-hmm. And so really what this chapter ends up doing um, is sort of laying groundwork with like some broad guidelines of like, you know, uh, you don't want to give your character, you don't want to give your user, right, your interactor, this was, I think interactor is the term that she would probably uh, prefer. You don't want to give your interactor too much to do. Uh, you don't want to uh, have a computer program that they can open up, and it could be anything from Google Earth to uh, Microsoft Word, right? You don't want one computer, yep. like you don't want one program that could do both of those things, uh, and also, I guess, let them check their Twitter or something, right? Um, you want to have some sort of constraint. You want to have some sort of uh, guiding principles that are going to uh, generate. Uh, whatever kind of behaviors you're going to end up seeing in your in your users. Did you have something to say, Cameron? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's uh, exactly. She she kind of uh, develops these two concepts of intrinsic and extrinsic um, uh, constraints here, mm-hmm. and they're basically. I mean, w- what's so fascinating to me about this chapter? Uh, you know, I think for the most part, there's a lot of history going on in this chapter. I don't think the the argument develops in a super heavy way because, as you said, she's about to dedicate a whole chapter to playing a lot of this out. But what's so fascinating to me about this chapter is that it's really dedicated to um, an idea that it really doesn't matter what a per, like a what a what a computer application allows a person to do, and it really doesn't matter what a person wants to do. It um, it matters uh, whether there appear to be constraints against things they cannot do. And so it's kind of like this weird mind reading that's going on. It doesn't really matter what the capabilities are. As long as the, the designer of a, of a computer program thinks about what the, the interactor is going to do and then sets up constraints around uh, their expectations, mm-hmm. then that's good enough for the most part. Um, and in fact, it seems like the vast majority of the like design ideals here are how to design expectations into your users. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I really wish that I'd read this. I, I just had no idea that this book was doing all of this kind of stuff. I Computers as Theater made me think this book was one thing and not another thing. I really mm-hmm. wish I'd read this book earlier in my life. 
Um, but you know, this really makes me think about my own work on diagrams, you know, mm-hmm. d- on Gilles Deleuze and diagrams in relationship to video games, because that's what they are. I mean, in some ways, is that they are designed sets of expectations about what your own capabilities are. And then what the capabilities of the the computational system are, even if they are more or less than, you know, um, uh, what is actually there. Um, and it, it, in some ways it feels, um, th- this chapter feels to me like very cynical in the sense of like, look, people can, you can pull the wool over people's eyes really easily by just telling them they can't do things. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe that does work. I mean, you know, I'm not, I've designed plenty of games, but that's not really the kind of thing I'm thinking about. And I'm certainly not having to parse through like 10 billion edge cases, like someone who's working on commercial products is. And so I don't really think about that too much. Um, I will say what this made me think about in my own design work is that Connor Sherlock and I made a game called um, Marginalia a few years ago. And uh, Jacob Geller recently did a video about like walking in the woods in video games and including our games, you know, you know, thanks to Jacob for doing that. And, uh, but his whole point was like, yeah, you can just walk in one direction forever and like never learn anything. <laughs> and, like, and like the game doesn't happen. And I was like, ah, oh, yes, that was exactly intended uh-huh. in, what, in what I, what I set out to do as a uh, narrative designer on this and, and definitely what Connor intended to do. Um, First but, thing but we it wrote really on the funny. whiteboard, you say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Infinite forest in one direction. <laughs> um, but, but it's the kind of thing of like, um, we tried to design into a certain space that there were expectations, but we did not, you know, convince you you couldn't do that. And it looks like you can, right? And so uh, he went with it, and it was really <laughs> profound for him. And I'm glad that that, that worked out for sure. Uh, certainly revealed something about my own work that I wasn't aware of. But um, as all good criticism does, I think. But, uh, <laughs> but, but you know, I was thinking about that while reading this, being like, Mm, yes, I'm. I'm a Laurelian designer, of course. <laughs> I've, I've weaponized this for art. What's really funny about that is that my version of that story is that in my first Twine game, Tower of the Blood Lord, where I remade Call of Duty Modern Warfare Two in Twine, uh, I got bored mm-hmm. with recreating the actual game at about the point you should tutorialize how to use grenades. Uh, so I just had the game go in a different direction at that point. So you never get to learn how to use grenades. But because I also had the Xbox controller in the text menu, you could continue to try to use grenades. At which point, because you never got the tutorial, uh, you would die because you didn't know how to use them. Um, and there were people who were very, very certain that I had hidden a a secret grenade tutorial into that game. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's good. So... I like I like the, the the illustrative difference there in our respective outputs. Mm-hmm. Walking through the woods versus who has the secret grenade tutorial. <laughs> yeah, I think we got different audiences, maybe mm-hmm. <laughs> for, for the things we make. But but yeah, that's kind of what's going on here. There's a really interesting section here that that uh, preview for my own book, hopefully coming out uh, in the fall of this year, or maybe a little bit after that. Uh, on first-person experience as a kind of agential property. I'm absolutely going to be in conversation with this in the book. I'm going to, like, uh, 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 very quickly <laughs> edit edit a few pages into my book on this because I think it's very interesting. Um, and then this kind of, like, uh, she, some of the analysis that we talked about earlier as far as empathy and catharsis, uh, that shows up here, too. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I will say this is the chapter that maybe this stuck out to me the most. Um, and maybe we should talk about this here too. This book is chock full of um, sidebars. Uh-huh. Again, very textbooky. They're very textbooky. And they're just like things from her and I'm I'm blanking on her husband's name. Right. Uh Rob. From their life. And sometimes they're written from the perspective of Rob and sometimes they're not. I don't... Yeah, I was going to say, he's I, got, like, a guest column in this book, basically. <laughs> kind of, yeah. So sometimes it's the first person, Rob, and sometimes it's not. I'm very unclear about when that's happening. But sometimes they're, they're like, illustrations, those anecdotal illustrations we were talking about at the beginning of the episode. Sometimes they're something different. Sometimes I'm... Sometimes there's just, like, a fun story from her life. Um, and... Um, but sometimes they're historical or sometimes they're about like good design, bad design. And, um, I don't think they all make a huge ton of sense. There's one that like talks about lawn jockeys in a way that is like not complicated nearly enough to address the problem mm-hmm. of the semiotic problem of lawn jockeys and their racist history. Yeah. Well, that was really weird. Um, there is one that's entirely about JJ Abrams, uh, and why JJ Abrams mystery box uh, design problems are wrong. Um, and so she, she is explicitly like, stick to open the box, JJ. Maybe your imagination's in there. It's like really cutting. And the whole time I'm reading it, I was like, JJ Abrams did not write Lost. Like, that's not like it's the whole thing is a cri- criticism of like his mystery box, box logic, the way that he um, did Lost, and then the way that uh, the, his Star Trek film works. And one of those he's just not responsible for. It's not his fault. Um, so some of them feel really weird, like just as, as far as what they're doing. But um, they so, and they have some historical claims in them that I'm not exactly sure are 100% accurate. And some of the historical stuff really stuck out to me here in Chapter 4. Um, she calls Doom and some later uh, first-person shooters massively multiplayer first-person shooters. I don't think I've never seen Doom called that. Mm-hmm. Um, she says World of Warcraft was made in 1994, and I'm assuming that she means uh, orcs and humans, but this is in a chapter that's dealing with massively multiplayer stuff. And so I would really encourage people... Uh, the reason I'm bringing this up is not to be like, there's inaccuracies throughout this whole book. Um the reason I'm bringing it up is that I would be very careful about using this book as like kind of historical citation mm-hmm. thing um, for anything outside of her direct experience. On the flip side of that, I think this is an absolute treasure trove of like what happened when and who thought what when. Mm-hmm. There's an amazing thing. We didn't talk about it, uh, but there's an amazing thing, I think, in chapter one where she's talking about how in 1988 there was a conference um, that was pulled together from people from a bunch of different disciplines trying to figure out what the word interactivity meant. And everyone was pissed <laughs> off about it. Yes. <laughs> like people were apparently yelling at each other and arguing in sessions trying to determine what the word interactive was. And I was like, this is amazing. Like short of someone being there, you would never know that that word pissed people off as much in the mm-hmm. 80s as it does now. Um, so so I really appreciate, you know, I, I think that when she is talking about her direct historical experience this is invaluable right like super awesome um but when it strays from that um it it might be useful to kind of double check some of this information Mm -hmm. then we have chapter five Mm -hmm. which is really the most uh you know sort of direct experience into advice kind of chapter that we get uh earlier everything had been kind of these sidebars uh you know, sort of reminisces, uh, and we get, you know, the, the little pieces of wisdom out of those occasionally. And sometimes it's just like, you know, a funny story that she wanted to tell you or something, or a strange story. Um, 
But anyway, uh, here we get her laying out design heuristics uh, and specifically, right, like these are like my rules, things you need to remember when you are designing programs, working with computers. Like these are the things that I think you should always have in mind. Um, and I don't think we need to run through all of them and what they mean, because, again, if you are interested, uh, check out this book. Uh, I am not a human computer interaction designer necessarily like not professionally that is not a label i would apply to myself so i think if brenda laurel's done a lot more of that than me i think that maybe she probably has something to say to you more than i could uh probably relate it yep um i think a lot of it is you know a lot of this are are like um you know pillarizing in some ways just stuff that we've talked about already too you mm -hmm. know I, I i think if you read the book up to chapter five there's very little in chapter five that's surprising no. You know, uh, in the sense of like, oh, yeah, we've seen the kind of theorization that gets us here. Um, if you were going to like rip out one chapter that has like, here's just the actionable information from this book. If if I only care about what are what are Brenda Laurel's like principles for design, that's chapter five. Although I don't think that you have any of the proof of these things without reading the rest of the book. So, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I don't think you can just read it in its um you know, it singularly by itself, but yeah, absolutely what you're saying. Um, there's some weird stuff going on here too, about like universal emotions, mm -hmm. um, that she, she like, she seems very willing to do some of the pure Aristotelian structure stuff of like, yeah, there's a finite number of human emotions and there's a finite number of, of facial expressions that people can make. And so we can like drill that down into an actionable number and start making decisions on it. And whenever we start doing that kind of stuff, I get a little bit wary, right? Uh -huh. Like um, there's, there's a couple hundred, you know, recent years of history that make me very wary about doing that kind of thing. And, and I don't think that she is, you know, evoking that ideology in any kind of way, but there's also not a lot of safeguards against that here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that you could take some of these design principles and, and rip them right out and then make some really kind of terrifying objects out of them and not realize that you're doing something perhaps um, ethically troubled. Um, so, you know, it was hard to, hard to kind of parse through all that in this chapter, and I just got to be honest about my emotional kind of reaction to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, like, just a good example here is that... Um, you know, one is, this is on page 169, explore new methods for enabling emotional expression and communication among agents. So this could be, you know, uh, computer bound entities, but could also be multiple people using the same computer. And again, I immediately think of the internet and I think of what of safeguards, what of harassment, uh, you know, like enabling communication among uh, any given number of agents is just seen as in itself good. And we have seen kind of in practice, like what it means to have multiple agents on a computer uh, being able to communicate with each other in many, many ways uh, and the kinds of harassment that grows and, and, you know, in every sort of like social space uh, in, in the present internet. Right. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and then like, yeah, the only kind of, um, you know, response to that that's given is like well moderating's hard and you got to figure that out and it's like well yeah that's true but if that's the case then is this initial thing actually an un, un you know an unalloyed good in that regard then mm -hmm. you know is that a good idea or do we need to like flip this design ethic and begin from a position of what are the best safeguards for creating 
uh, useful communication, for example, or useful emotional expression or positive emotional expression. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I think I think it's a chapter that that is really eye opening and helpful if you're thinking about ways of design, but it's also one that needs to be read critically. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and then the final chapter is uh, really just her. Again, uh, I, I said this is kind of like a blog, um, and this is kind of like the post that you write when you have decided to end your blog. <laughs> uh, just kind of like going through everything and sort of reflecting on like the future and what it holds. Because if you've ended your blog, like you've you've got other projects kind of on the horizon. And so much of this book has been about, I think, Brenda Laurel revisiting her old ideas um Mm -hmm. and sort of you know the the younger version of her who who wrote those first versions down um and now she sort of starts looking forward into virtual reality and augmented reality technologies and uh and you you mentioned at the beginning that uh some some of the things that books have to do is you have to call some shots and this is where she takes her second round at calling some shots on uh in terms of you know where technology right now is going to go and then we also get a really interesting digression into the medieval theater and the renaissance fair so yeah i i saw that and i thought you know what i don't care about this too much and i kind of i i didn't skip it but i did skip it Mm -hmm. um i thought that was interesting but i couldn't really uh stick that into anything else so i kind of blitzed on by it yeah um yeah no i mean that's it's just really like she thinks vr and ar uh in, in what of here uh, I have it on my notes. One interesting point on 198 VR and AR are uh, interesting for her based on something you said earlier about sort of the, the premise of uh, representation and imagination. Uh, quote: Just like real humans and in interactive experiences, the real world uh, becomes part of a larger representation that we are co-creating. That is how she describes uh, sort of the potential of VR and AR technologies. Um, and again, I think folds into a lot of like, we would have questions right now about like, well, who are the companies that control these technologies and how are these representations being manufactured and so on and so forth. So, um, it's, it's more things like that. Uh, the interesting bit about the medieval theater is that she is starting to think through the spatialization, uh, of like the, the spatialization implied by VR and AR, uh, to her is mirrored by medieval theater where you would have a uh, sort of multiple like stages set up right pageant wagons is uh, the term that she pulls from the literature here uh, and in medieval english theater uh, the kind of occasion for this was usually some sort of festival week uh, so it's also kind of a time of uh, you know, a fair, like people are bringing things into markets to sell them. It's, 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 it's a great kind of event. And you sort of go around and you see like, here is the stage where they are performing uh, the first part of creation. Here is the uh, stage where this other guild has put together their version. There, it's a big civic event, right? These are not professional mm-hmm. actors. This is like, you know, the, the people that are your neighbors putting on these plays um, and sort of important uh, like guild functionaries. And she is uh, sort of taking that and looking at the contemporary version that is the Renaissance Fair and sort of seeing a kind of future where we are constantly, because of VR and AR technologies, uh, sort of 
enacting these little plots right uh mm -hmm. i i guess you know we can think of uh like how we're always being tracked by our phones for instance and what are the little dramas that we are telling when we go from one place to another again it, it, it this is not intended to go dark uh but we see kind of the very real ways in which this thinking uh is the the generation of a uh, sort of uh, te technologist and thinker that Laurel is part of, um, the way that these kind of ideologies have influenced what things are at the top now, and we can see kind of as you said, uh, Cameron, sort of the consequences that maybe we want to do something about. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, speaking of that kind of thing, I. I don't park exactly beside the building that I work in every day. Mm -hmm. um, and the building that I work in is apparently not on any map. It is not accepted as a building. Perhaps it's too small. I don't really understand why. And so my, my phone believes that I go to work at a church every day. And so every time I get in my car, it's like, you're, you're a few minutes away from church <laughs> five days a week. And so I just want to, you know, oh, what's that data? What's that story telling about me? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, what kind of weird misrepresentations going on in my life? But, uh, but yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, like you said, kind of the, the whole structure of this chapter is just like, hey, here's some ideas I have about technology in the world and how, how it kind of works. And it takes a weird turn, especially because it begins with one dog. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> which, I didn't talk about one is, dog. One dog is the coolest technology. So yeah, like one of the first sidebars in this last chapter is uh, about Laura Crawford, who is who is one of Brenda Laurel Brenda Laurel's students. Gosh, can't get it out. Um, a few years ago, created a system called One Dog, and it's basically Tinder for dogs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, it, you know, it's like you you put in all these things about your life into this app, and then it tells you who your perfect dog would be, and then the the app was hooked into. Um, a bunch of shelters around the city and so that you could find you had your perfect dog and it would help you find your perfect dog um and so you know that that sounds fun you know it sounds like a good mm -hmm. thing and this person like now works in um uh, you know in some large corporation somewhere she like gives us a where are they now kind of thing but to me it was literally like oh yeah shit this technology is just like everywhere now mm -hmm. like this basic idea of like reducing you to a set of delimited desires now just purely algorithmically and then matching you with like ideal outcomes whether that would be good or not right um but but numerically it looks like a good thing that's just everywhere now that's all of life we're all one dog now. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, we used to be the man now dog, and now we're one dog. <laughs> um, you know, uh, th that's my version of the the hope and jobs thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the hope jobs meme is, we used to be the man now dog, and we're now just one dog. Someone someone worked that out for me and then tweeted yeah. at me. You'll figure it out. But, um, we'll but where, where this whole thing... T-shirt. Yes, please hook me up. Uh, put that thing on uh, Redbubble <laughs> uh, and get the big dog guy on it too. Um, but uh, the, where this all goes, we can kind of wrap up this episode. Where this all goes is James Lovelock's Gaia thesis. Uh-huh. Did you see that coming? I did not. <laughs> uh, this guy named James, if people aren't familiar with it, uh, this guy named James Lovelock created this the Gaia thesis. I think in the 80s is when this comes uh, comes about, maybe in the 1970s. Which is the idea that the the Earth is kind of one living creature um, in the sense that all of its ecosystems and biomes and things like that cr uh, operate in such a way 
um, together that it creates one kind of living pattern of life across the whole thing. So mm-hmm. it's not just the uh, the jet stream and it's not just the, um, I don't know, the, the ice caps melting and it's not just the... Uh, the cycle that like moves all the water throughout the the world. That's not the Coriolis effect, but something like that. It's, it's called the just water the... cycle, Cameron. Oh, not that part though. But the thing that like moves water uh, under from the sea trench or the floor <laughs> okay. of the oceans all the way to the Atlantic oceans, and, and then it uh, comes up and then it goes out to the Pacific Ocean. You know what I'm talking about? It's yes, like it's what... not the Coriolis effect. You were correct in that. I don't know yeah. what it is that you're talking. I mean, I know what it is that you're talking about. I do not know the term. But I was just thinking the thing that moves the, the cycle that moves the water around the Earth is the water cycle, Cameron. <laughs> Yeah, it's the thing that like makes the Atlantic cold and the mm-hmm. Pacific not as cold. It's like this big system and it moves like trash everywhere in the bottom of the ocean. So like mm-hmm. it moves um, um, like uh, like food and stuff like that. And it's all messed up, of course, like everything else is. Anyway, the Earth is not just those systems, but rather all those systems working together in this kind of complex and emergent property that makes the Earth a, a kind of a living entity. Um, and uh, it's a really compelling thesis in some ways. Um but, you know, a lot of people um, are, are also, it, it is controversial in some ways too, right? Because it naturalizes certain things about how we interact with the world. It anthropomorphizes part of the world too. And certainly the earth is nothing like, um, a, you know, a living entity in the way that we would think about it. Um, and uh, anyway, so, you know, complicated in all kinds of ways. But uh, that's kind of where she turns. She turns to Lynn Margulis Margulis and kind of uh, symbiosis theory Mm -hmm. and symbiotic convergence and and emergence out of that. Weirdly enough, it turns into like my whole world (laughs) of things I read about and care about. Um, And and really begins to to try to articulate, or or I guess doesn't try, but she she articulates a theory of how does interaction design run into all these things? if the relationship between the human and the earth and the human and all things on, on the earth is a question of um, uh, representation and expectation of each other, then isn't a tree kind of like a computer in that regard? And if that's the case, then doesn't HCI or interaction design in a broad sense, doesn't that have something to do with um, or, or can't that do something with climate and the way that we relate to the natural world around us? Mm hmm. And sure, I guess. Yep. And that's that's kind of where we end. Very positive. Very hopeful for the future. Well, you are really... You're not reading one of the final lines. Which uh, really... It hurt me in my heart. And so I can't not talk about it. Okay. All right. You're, you're going to open this. I For the record, here is how I have described this to Cameron. Um... The final lines of my notes read like a text log from a horror immersive sim. Yeah, kind of. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I've, I've got the I've got my spray paint ready to go. You know, they're they're coming. They're not dead yet. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, all that <laughs> stuff. Yeah. She, uh, she says this. This is the um, halfway through the second to last paragraph all the way through the end of the book. I'm just going to read it here. Well. No, actually, let me. I'm going to go a little bit further than that. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but this is one of the last paragraphs of the book. Uh, a typical, a, a typical uh, uh, response to this call, and she's talking about the kind of response to the Earth of, of kind of trying to interaction design our ways out of the nightmare that we've put ourselves in as a species. Uh, a typical response to this call from interaction designers is often one of dismissal or frustration. 
I work for a giant game company. They would never approve of a project that went against their winning strategies in the marketplace. Well, friends, we are living in an entrepreneurial time. Elon Musk, founder of SpaceX and Tesla Motors, will go to Mars because he is making it so. People with a lot less wealth than Musk have funded companies to do, to do right relationship building with investment by regular people through tools like Kickstarter and Indiegogo. Well, it's hard, designers tell me. It's hard to create a product or technology with the intention of cultural intervention, one that goes against the tropes of popular culture. To those I reply, people have done these things. I've described many of them in this book. It's hard because it requires not only entertaining people, but also changing their minds. It's hard because there are few existing market niches for such work. Yes, it's hard. Virtue is hard. Gaia's citizenship is hard. Suck it up. Get to work. There's one additional paragraph that's just kind of repeating that, but then we get the final line, which is, hope is an active verb. And it's it's that's it it's hard to take this, right? And not because I think it's hard, although yes, it is deeply hard to like um to do these things, but I think the hard thing is to bootstrap yourself out of uh climate collapse. Yeah. <laughs> and and out of like the deeply violent modes of ideology that are ascendant in, in the world today. Um, you know, I, I think that this is such a um uh, as we talked about earlier, very much a California ideology kind of way, right? That, you know, let's just use the system that we live in to liberate ourselves from the system that produced the condition we live in, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, let's uh, you know, straight up Deridian Pharmacon, right? Let's use that poison <laughs> that's also the cure. Let's start drinking it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I don't know if that's going to work out, right? I It really, like I said, it hurt my heart to like read this book and be like, yeah, like Brenda Laurel has it figured out in some ways of like, there are some really interesting theoretical and, and certainly game studies ideas here that are just not, for whatever reason, taken as seriously as as other kind of contemporaries like Chris Crawford. I mean, I think we do know some of those reasons. Mm-hmm. It's sexism, um, and, you know, written into um, our citational apparatus, right? We have the opportunity to correct that, right? And, you know, I, and I would really strongly encourage people to to engage with this book and think through its ideas because I think there's a lot here that is just as important um, as what was going on in the 1980s from other people who were there, right, for the early moments of thinking about what does it mean to design these these objects that are, you know, intimate parts of our lives now. Um, but when we get that at the end of the book of like, yeah, you, I hope you can pull on your bootstraps hard enough to get to Mars. Elon Musk is going to do it because he says he will. He's making it so. Mm-hmm. That is just, that's, that is like political nihilism to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I have such a hard time taking that. Yeah. Well, (laughs) (laughs) where can they find you, Cameron? Oh, you can go to twitter.com slash range touch. And guess what you can do now, Michael? What? You can go to pureideology.biz. Yeah! (laughs) (laughs) Pureideology.biz. Your one-stop shop for finding out everything you want to know about game studies study buddies. Yeah, that's so we got a new redirect up that's uh, just pureideology.biz. So if you want to direct your friends to Game Study Study Buddies, it's going to take them right to the page um, that lets them learn all about it on the rangetouch.com website, uh, where you can also go to learn more about this show and all the other shows that we do. Um, 
Uh, I, I didn't ask you about it, Michael. I mean, in a broad sense, it, this is this book is much more in your wheelhouse than it is mine. I mean, interesting, worth engaging with. You're gonna you're gonna write about it later, or is this a, a thing of kind of read it one time and then oh, have it ruminating, but not engage with it too much? Um, I think uh, as an academic, I might not engage with this as much. Um, precisely for sort of the reasons that I've outlined, because I come to, like, my field comes to theater with such kind of, like, different uh, tones to its questions and such different orientations toward them. Um, but as a creator, I do think that there is something uh, worthwhile here, especially, like, as we've talked about, like, the way that uh, Laurel can um, explain the way that Aristotelian drama does, in fact, explain to how some of the ways that we interact with computers, right? And some of the ways that we tell stories with computers and how those stories work. So as a writer-creator, I would uh, probably, um, you know, be engaging with some of these ideas and, and uh, you know, pulling from them. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter.com, at Warren is Dead. And you can, of course, go to patreon.com slash rangetouch. All of these links are down in the description below this. Um, you can go there to support the show, uh, you know, contribute as little as a dollar a month. That keeps us going and that makes us able to continue doing the show and pay for hosting and all that kind of cool stuff. The immense amount of time that we spend reading books every month because we do other shows as well, like Just King Things, where we are reading through the works of Stephen King in publication order. Uh, by the time this comes up, we will be about to release the episode on Roadwork, one of his uh, Bachman novels. So if you're interested in checking that out, as well as our episodes on The Stand or The Shining or Carrie or any of those other big novels that you're probably already familiar with, um, you can find out uh, more about that at rangetouch.com. And we, have, of course, got Too Much Future, our show about the Fallout games, uh, Mages and Murder Dads, where we talk about the Baldur's Gate and the games beyond Baldur's Gate and all kinds of cool stuff like that youtube.com slash ranged touch as well next month we are going to be reading a personal fave this is I, I think this is a book that michael doesn't know anything about i don't think you've read this before michael um but uh super favorite i was literally just reading a big chunk of it uh this past weekend uh, a, a book that i find to be um uh stylistically and conceptually what we would call my thing <laughs> <laughs> uh colin milburn's mondo nano um i don't have any uh, there's no word to describe what's going on with this book uh it's got everything from nanotechnology to uh government um uh, uh, uh malpractice to to uh, uh i don't know it's got a bunch of weird stuff in it it's got a, it's just trying to get at the question of life in the digital era and how games kind of interweave with all of that. I wouldn't say it's necessarily explicitly a game studies book, but it's certainly a book about our contemporary period in media theory. Um, I really like it. I think it's really cool. I think more people should read it. So we're going to do it on the show next. And then after that, uh, we'll be doing uh, Chris Patterson's uh, Open World Empire. And then after that, we'll be doing uh, Lev Manovich's The Language of New Media. So that's the next little sequence of books that we're planning on doing into the summer. Um, so if you want to start reading those, uh, to be ready for when the shows come out, um, you, you can do that. Um, so yeah, so thanks so much for listening to this episode. Uh, if you liked it, please rate us on whatever platform that you're listening to, uh, give us that five-star rating. If you're on, uh, Apple podcasts, go ahead and write a little review, say, Hey, this is really great. I really like it. Uh, I think everyone should listen to it. Five stars, perfect show, very good, A plus good stuff. Uh, and please do that as the exact quotation. 
um, that, that helps us with the algorithm. Michael, you got anything you want to say before we take it out with the catchphrase? Sure thing, Cameron. Until next time, folks, remember, the social is predicated upon its exclusions. <laughs>